Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, episode number 45, Alex Stein, Law and the Epistemology of Disagreement. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Alex Stein. Alex is professor of law at Brooklyn Law School, where he teaches evidence, torts, and medical malpractice law. Alex is widely published in the areas of evidence and torts, as well as legal theory more generally. Our podcast today features Alex's recent article, Law and the Epistemology of Disagreement. In the article, Alex applies insights from the philosophical literature on the epistemology of disagreement to critique and question how decisions are made in the legal system. For example, should we worry when jurors unanimously agree on a verdict but disagree on their reasons? Alternatively, when jurors can't agree on a verdict, should we retry the case, as is conventionally done, Or should the hung jury be counted as reasonable doubt and itself grounds for acquittal? And outside of the fact-finding context, what should we do when judges disagree? What precedential weight should be given to cases decided 5 to 4 as opposed to ones decided 9 to 0? Alex introduces us to this fascinating and for most of us unfamiliar field, and then draws implications from there. Alex, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Well, thanks so much. It's great to be here. Your article grounds itself in the epistemology of disagreement, which is an emerging area in the philosophy of decision-making. Can you give us a quick introduction to this area of philosophy? What are its main questions and interests? Sure. Well, epistemology of disagreement itself is a broader subset of general philosophy. And epistemology of disagreement is a subset of social epistemology, which is a discipline which asks itself whether and to what extent other epistemic agents should influence our judgments about facts and probabilities. And how do epistemologists answer this question? So how are we supposed to handle the problem of having other epistemic agents, and in fact, in this area, it's epistemic peers, people who we respect, what are we supposed to do when they disagree with us? Well, actually, the very first question is to figure out whether an epistemic agent that gives you information is your epistemic peer. And so given that uh, she is, given that you have the same information and that you base your factual judgments on the same evidence, then there is a question how to go about the disagreement, how to go about the dissent. And here, epistemologists, they disagree among themselves as to what to do. There is a camp of epistemologists associated with the steadfast approach, which means that if you are 
justified in believing something. That if you have solid evidence in believing that the probability of such and such event is, let's say, 0.75, then the fact that someone else thinks differently should not change your judgment because you are justified and you should not count this disagreement as evidence that has anything to do with your evidence because you've already processed your evidence and that evidence gave you this justified probabilistic assessment. Another camp of epistemologists, which I think is prevailing, includes people who believe that there must be some sort of conciliation. And the basic idea here is that your peers dissent, a dissent that comes from from your epistemic peer, a person who disagrees with your judgment is evidence in and of itself. And because it's evidence, it would be irrational for you not to consider it as any other evidence. And so what I propose is not to merge this disagreement into your evidence directly, but rather reduce your own confidence in uh, the probabilistic assessment or in whatever factual judgment you are making in the face of a peer disagreement. So this is a second order evidence, evidence about the credibility of the information upon which you base your judgment. And we've got to account for this second order evidence because not doing so is simply to ignore relevant information, which is epistemically unjustified and perhaps even irrational. And so your position is really one that you might characterize as intellectual humility, that yes, maybe we should stand our ground, but you know, if other people who we respect think differently, we should become more uncertain about our positions. Yeah, well, in this article, I, I'm actually trying to reconcile between the two camps, I'm trying to find some common ground and a possible reconciliation between the stick to your guns approach, the steadfast approach, and the conciliatory approach. And so what I'm saying is this, we should draw the distinction between decisions that are based upon facts about which you are certain, absolutely certain, and you are justifiably so. So you have a justified true belief in something and probabilistic beliefs. So whenever in those extremely rare cases in which you're absolutely certain about something, maybe not extremely rare, but still rare, then I think you would be justified to ignore your epistemic peer because you have a fully justified epistemic base for having this categorical belief and you do not need any second order evidence to boost or to update, to reflect upon your own confidence because your belief is categorical based on the information that you have. And so here you can follow the steadfast approach. But if your confidence is less than categorical, if your belief is less than categorical, and if the facts upon which you base your decision are less than certain, so we use probabilities, which is what we normally do in making decisions because we normally decide under uncertainty, then second order evidence becomes relevant. And if second order evidence becomes relevant, it is just not possible to ignore a peer's disagreement. So this is simply about basic rationality. So what justifies your decision to block away evidence which is epistemically relevant because it goes to the credibility or reliability of your own probabilistic beliefs? Let's move to the legal context. Your paper addresses this problem of disagreement in a variety of different legal contexts, including appellate and Supreme Court decisions. But of course, since this is an evidence podcast, what I'm going to zero in on is your analysis of juries and the fact-finding process. So where does this problem arise with juries? Well, with juries, this problem arises on the very basic level, in fact. 
So what happens with juries is that for criminal convictions, we require unanimity. And in some, uh, I believe in two jurisdictions, 10 out of 12 jurors will also be enough. And once we have this agreement about the bottom line, that should be enough. The defendant should be convicted. And I argue we should look into the reasons underlying those so-called agreements. Because if we have six jurors who believe witness A, and witness A says, I saw this defendant with a rifle in the vicinity of the bank. And based on this uh, witness, six jurors believe that the defendant is guilty of robbery. Yet the remaining six jurors, they also believe that the defendant is guilty of robbery, but they believe that the defendant is guilty of robbery is based on a whole different evidence. In fact, these six jurors disbelieve witness A, but they do find another witness credible beyond a reasonable doubt, and this is the witness who identified the defendant inside the bank. Here, the traditional doctrine says clearly the defendant should be convicted, and in fact, we may even use the disjunction rule, the simple mathematical probability theory, and say, look, when we do the disjunctive analysis, then this should give us proof beyond reasonable doubt. And I say this is all wrong, because we now have second-order evidence for each camp of jurors undermining the credibility of its own decision. So this cannot be beyond reasonable doubt. Here's my problem with this position. And in some sense, I'm playing a little devil's advocate. I understand that there are some epistemic problems with having half the jury believe one story and half the jury believe another. But from a practical level, why is this a problem? Why can't we just say that the decision rule in the legal system is basically the one we have, that juries have to arrive at the same outcome in some unanimous way, but they're allowed to have some difference in rationale. And I guess what I'm asking here is, why is it that the legal decision-making rule has to line up or match the epistemic rule? Can't we have a legal rule or legal position that is a bit more rough and tumble or more pragmatic? Well, absolutely, we can have it. Except, of course, when facts, so the truth of the facts underlying the decision is of immense consequence. And I believe that criminal convictions you know, have got to be true in the deepest possible empirical sense. The defendant has got to have done it in order to be justifiably convicted. Then we should care about it. And I have to make a little correction here. So in my scenario, we have a camp of jurors who does not only say, I base the defendant's conviction on witness B. They also say, we affirmatively reject witness A. And this affirmative rejection also means that the epistemic dependability that attaches to both camps of jurors is now sufficiently weak. Of course, we can say this is enough, but we cannot call it proof beyond a reasonable doubt in an epistemic sense, because that would be a violation of epistemic rationality, because we know that there are reasons to question the conviction. And yet we are saying, let's pretend that those reasons do not exist. This is not how proof beyond a reasonable doubt even conceptually formulated, let alone the substantive risk of wrongful conviction that we have in any such scenario. How would you change the doctrine then? You would remove the ability to disagree on reasons or you would demand agreement on reasons? I would allow jurors to make a decision based upon alternative witnesses. So a juror can say, I believe witness A or alternatively witness B. Jurors could make this alternative fact verdict, and this is absolutely fine. Because you know, I'm a believer in disjunctions that can work, provided that these are genuine and real disjunctions. 
I believe that either witness A or witness B told the truth. But not if I say witness A is a liar, but witness B, I believe that he or she told the truth. And for that reason, I convict and the other six jurors say the exact opposite. And so, in fact, it, it has another important implication for the jury system. So we all believe that what matters is the majority or supermajority. And if we reduce the number of jurors who agree to convict, if we insist that jurors also align in their reasons for decisions, I would say, look, if you have nine people who say that what you're saying is wrong, then maybe there is no reasonable doubt because they also have to update their own credibility, given that they have nine peers who disagree with them. And for that reason, this, this whole idea of head counting is alien to epistemology because epistemology doesn't care about head counting as such, but rather it cares about the substance of where people coalesce and where they do not and what the consequences are. You make a couple of points here, and I, I want to break it down and push you on each of them. So the first piece I want to push on is that you want agreement on reasons. That suggests to me that what you're pushing for is doing away with general verdicts, at least in the criminal context, and going to special verdicts where jurors have to actually agree on specific factual points. First, is that correct? And second, if that's true, any sense of why we have a disfavor for special verdicts when, in fact, your claim is that they are epistemically superior? Actually, this is one of several possible techniques, but certainly I would be in favor of special verdicts and I would be in favor of a different system whereby the judge instructs jurors that this is what they should do. And if they don't, then they should simply report to the judge. And then the judge will figure out what's going on. In fact, I'm also saying that the fear of mistrial is not a big fear. What I suggest in this context, that if jurors fail to agree, then again, as per epistemology of disagreement, the defendant should simply be acquitted, unless the judge finds that the disagreement on behalf of one of the jurors or more was strategic rather than grounded in epistemic reasons. And I don't think that fear of appeals is justified, because I actually think that criminal appeal is a good thing, and it would be good if criminal appeals were more meaningful, given the extent of protection that criminal defendants should get against wrongful conviction. There was another concern that there will be a mistrial, but I address it. I say mistrial is a misnomer. Mistrial, from my perspective, can only happen when you have a strategic blockade, so that someone strategically thwarts or prevents the jury from making a decision one way or another. But if we have a genuine disagreement, the jurors are deadlocked in good faith, and there is no evidence suggesting that this is strategic, then the defendant should be acquitted because we do have enough information for reasonable doubt. That's great. So now... Here's the second piece, and it ties very well into your abolition of this hung jury mistrial rule and this concern about reducing the number of jurors that you mentioned earlier, moving from, say, 12 to 9. It seems to me that if you have your way and we force agreement on the reasons, we basically make it more difficult as a whole for the prosecution to convict in various cases. Or if you want to extend it to civil case, it would be more difficult to reach any kind of decision. But I think then that places pressure on courts to reduce the number of jurors. So rather than having 12, you might have nine, you might have six. And the question then becomes, is that a good result? So you can have 12, but they have a diverse set of reasons, or you can have six that agree on everything, but the six have a different problem, which is that 
you know, having a larger jury increases the diversity of opinions and the ability of different groups or people with different backgrounds to get on the jury, and that's generally a better thing. How would you make this trade-off? Well, we need to agree on a number that guarantees minimal random selection and minimal threshold for diversity among the jurors, that's for sure. I wouldn't support the idea of artificially reducing the number of jurors to six or five just in order to increase the probability of an agreement. I would say, as far as I'm concerned, can be 12, but they should follow sound epistemic principles. But I'm also saying that nine out of 12, nine against three for me would be enough for conviction, even if three jurors disagree. And it may well be a good idea to reduce the number of jurors to 10 or maybe even to nine. I'm not sure about eight because at some point you have to stop because any such reduction jeopardizes, as you said, diversity and also random selection. And these are essential elements in, in the jury selection, especially in the criminal justice system such as ours that has to counter uh, different biases, which we do not always do successfully. But that's a whole different story. Final question for you. What remains to be done in this area of evidence? In previous seasons, as you know, I talked to Mike Pardo about very similar issues about group decision making. How does your position differ from his? And is there related work that you'd like to do yourself or would like to see others like Mike work on? Well, Mike did obviously fabulous work in this area. In fact, he was the first to bring social epistemology in the area of evidence. And I discussed his article in this piece. We have some slight disagreements over how jurors should decide collectively. But on the conceptual level, I don't agree that jury should be treated as an epistemic unit in and of itself, simply because it isn't. It just consists of individuals. But what I'm saying is that those individuals as a group, they should follow sound rules of decision-making. And so social epistemology obviously accommodates this insight as well. Now, what remains to be done? I think we need to be more aware of the connections between the law of evidence and substantive law. Because when I move from the law of evidence to substantive law, where we have a whole lot to worry about given the prosecutorial ability to convict based upon broadly defined offenses and various alternative theories of the case and harsh sentences that eliminate the possibility of a trial in the first place because criminal defendants are motivated to plea bargain and so we don't even know the true facts. Evidence scholars, perhaps, or, or maybe even more broadly, evidence and procedure scholars should focus upon substantive criminal law and see what's going on and see whether the prosecutorial opportunities that have become entrenched in this system because of substantive, our evidentiary and procedural ideas, concepts, and rules do not really do the job that they're supposed to be doing given this immense crushing power that prosecutors nowadays have. Well, Alex, thanks for your thoughts on the epistemology of disagreement and how it relates to juries and the fact-finding process. Great having you on the show. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. One of the things I've tried to implicitly emphasize through my curating for this podcast is that evidence is more than just the rules of evidence, meaning the rules of admissibility. To be sure, Admissibility rules are important and are front and center in everyday trial practice. But it seems to me that more fundamental is how we prove things, or what is the best way for proving things in the legal system. This latter set of questions unfortunately gets short shrift in the literature, and especially in the classroom. Alex's discussion of the epistemology of disagreement 
asks tough questions of our proof process. Do we handle dissent among jurors, among judges, in the right way in the legal system? How much epistemic justification do we need to make legitimate conclusions in law? Majority rule may sound great, though unanimity sounds even better, and unanimity about reasons still better. But I go back to the question I asked Alex late in our interview. Law is, after all, a practical discipline. Raise the epistemic bar too high, and you make the burden of proof unworkable, or at least inadvisable, as a matter of public policy. So if we want unanimity over reasons, surely we're going to have to trade it off with smaller, less diverse juries. And striking the right balance in this case is going to be tricky. In any event, the issues are indeed fascinating. And as with all great scholarship, Alex's article raises more questions than it necessarily answers. That does it for this episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producers are Alex Nunn and Margot Wilkinson-Smith, and the production editor is Carson Smith. Additional production assistance is provided by Aaron Parr Carranza, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.